if all of the priming stuff was right, then none of us would get to work in the morning. You know, you'd be sort of, you'd go past a billboard and you would immediately have to leap out and buy whatever, you know, divert yourself via the shopping center to buy whatever it was that had been subtly primed into you. And the, the, I mean, the other thing is psychologists don't really believe this themselves either. They certainly don't behave as if they believe this. Um, you know, in, in, in how you go to a meeting with a bunch of psychologists, it's no better, it may be no worse, but it's no better or worse than a meeting with a bunch of aerospace engineers or anything like that. Um, you know, they don't sit around going, hmm, we appear to be using a great deal of groupthink here, or, you know, here are 17 cognitive biases that are on public display in this, in this meeting of psychologists. Welcome to Everything Hurts. My name is Dan Quintana from the University of Oslo, and I'm here with James Heathers at Northeastern University. And today we have a special guest, Nick Brown from Groningen University in the Netherlands. Thanks for joining us, Nick. Now I'm just going to jump straight into it. Uh, Nick, on your Twitter bio, you describe yourself as a self-appointed data police cadet. Now, what do you think is the biggest problem facing scientific publishing today? I would say probably publication bias. I'm sure you will want me to say data fraud, but I would say publication bias is probably still the thing that's driving the most garbage. Um, but um, yeah, it, we, science has become this entire industry of keeping people in a job, first and foremost. And you know, the aim of the game is, is you know, whether you're the European Union or, or a country or a, a department or whatever it is, you know, the, the aim of the game is self-preservation and making sure that you know the money keeps rolling in and you can pay the salaries next month. And if, as an incidental bonus, we get to do some science, then that's all very well and good. But that certainly isn't the number one thing that anyone kind of worries about. But that doesn't that doesn't really shock me. I mean, I uh, uh, until five six years ago, I wasn't in science at all. And a lot of what people I see people complaining about in academia or in science, really is exactly the same in any other field of, of human endeavor. But it's just that a lot of the people complaining are, aren't old enough to have, you know, learnt or, or, or haven't spent time in other fields to discover, of life to discover that, yeah, that's pretty much how stuff works. So quite a lot of the stuff that people get totally scandalized about, and I sort of go, hmm, yep. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah, well, yeah. Well, welcome to We welcome, all used welcome. to make a lot more money and there were a lot more of us and all the inefficiencies mm. were exactly the same. Welcome yeah. to welcome to how large organizations interact with the bollocks that they have to do. There was a, a two or three part sort of semi-comedy drama on the BBC a few years ago called, um, in which um, Jane Horrocks played this woman who sort of semi-accidentally became prime minister. She was a very ordinary person, became prime minister. And she's been prime minister for about 48 hours. And uh, the guy from the Ministry of Defence comes in and says, Prime Minister, I, I have to tell you, uh, um, a group of royal marines have been caught on a dinghy uh, by the Iranians or whatever in their territorial waters. And um, oh, no. uh, they're going to be put on trial this evening and shot at dawn. And you know, Jane Hodgson says, but why? And the man from the Ministry of Defence says, well, because that's what happens. And uh, <laughs> so a great deal of what you read about these, you know, and these things we're going through of, you know, you go to a journal and this horrific bad piece of practice has happened and the journal won't do anything about it. Yeah, because that's what happens. Yeah. <laughs> so a lot of this stuff doesn't really, you know, I'm 56 years old and not too much shocks me anymore. Oh, that 
that I can can we treat that as a challenge? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're on video here, so I yeah, okay, I can cover <laughs> Not not like that, Stu. Oh. Well, look, that's um, that's. I think that look, that's a pretty reasonable perspective. And every time I, I read about uh, sexual harassment in academia, mm. there's a, a certain element of like, can you believe? Can you can you? There's a, there's a, there's there's an element of unreality to how it's being described by the people who are writing about it. And I, part of my I brain mean. thinks you're absolutely right in everything that you've just said, but I don't get the the shock that you see sometimes. Well, you mean the shock that sexual harassment is taking place? Yeah. Yeah. Because the people should be safe. Yeah, absolutely, they should. How can this be happening? Well, it, yeah. it happens because uh, old men are nasty. Uh, old men well, are at... nasty everywhere. I don't, I don't get the sense of unreality that comes with it. Yeah, I mean, I'd love it all to be stamped into the earth forever. That would be... That would be fantastic, but it's uh, there's an academic exceptionalism when it comes to how things should work. My, one of my first, very first teachers in, in my new life, um, very attractive woman, she told me, you know, she used to go to conferences when she was a grad student and, you know, she was kind of phoning her mum and going, you know, I can't believe what's going on here. And I said to her, well, yeah. you've got a field with... You've got to feel with overwhelmingly male faculty and overwhelmingly female grad students. You know, what did you think was going to happen? Yeah, with a huge um, power disparity, and yeah, yeah, you know, just, there's this. Just, yeah, you, this you couldn't old, design yeah. a better environment for, for sexual harassment to take place. Yeah, probably, man. The, the stories of it, like, if any guy has won a Nobel Prize and is over the age of sixty-five, there are people yeah. talking in the corner about how close you should get to him after he's had so many drinks. There's yeah. a whole entitlement culture bullshit thing, and we'd yeah. all be a lot healthier if it died. But um, it's, yeah, but in yeah, the meantime, it's a it isn't going terrible to. reflection of everywhere. Yeah. Yes, I, I mean, you know, let, let, let's let's not be let's not be surprised. Let's not be shocked about it. Let's just you know let's talk about it more and say this is going to happen mostly due to testosterone. Yeah, well, also, if there's one thing we can do, maybe compel universities to do something about it, because I mean, they, they treat everything like this as an exercise in brand management. Yes. So a lot of the time, when the when the brand's getting trashed, hey, you're protecting a full professor of astronomy who's a little bit handsy, and then graduated from a little bit handsy to a lot handsy. How about throwing him out into the street? And the university goes, I've got no idea what you're talking about. Yeah, there's yeah, there's places well, you can push back against that stuff. N no large organisation will ever take action on any kind of moral or you know, professionalism issue until the damage to its reputation by not doing so exceeds its damage to its reputation that they perceive of by, you know, admitting that the problem existed. So this is, do you feel like this is a vindication of handling issues of uh, publication bias, research fraud, bad practice, etc. in public at maximum volume? Um, I'm glad you asked me that, James. <laughs> um, I, I think, by and large, it should be done with more publicness and more volume than it typically is currently the case. Let's put it that way. Yeah, well, that seems like a. Obviously, I'm 
probably not going to disagree with that particular characterization. Uh, they're both snickering at me for the people without the benefit of video. Um, it does. It does seem to be. It does seem to be the case that it, it's the 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 closeness of review and the 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 bounds with which the academy, in any sense, is maintained when no one's looking. Was always focused around the idea of there's a it's it's on a pedestal because right. is it allows us to maintain an internal quality um, because that's what peer review is all about that's what making the decisions about the right people to come into the room and the right people to leave the room is all about and when that fails to work completely it's, need it's oxygen. putting it's putting your um, it's like putting your entire army on the outside wall of your city um, yes. you know, and then when that's breached you sort of go oh well what are we going to do you know, oh well the enemy's in now okay well they're now full citizens and we have to be nice to them um, you know we don't have any police we don't have any we just, you know, we're just a bunch of soldiers on the outside you can't come in you can't come in you can't come in and then, oh you're in oh well okay have you often been accused of being the, 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 the police? I like to collect euphemisms for people who are publicly critical uh, in science. And um, I always want, do you have any good personal ones? I don't realize I've never asked you this before. As far as I know, never. I think I uh, may be indirectly... How you that? Well, I think I may be indirectly referred to in one or two of the more general criticisms. Um, mostly because um, I... I Unlike a lot of my colleagues who enjoy being very shouty about it, um, on the one hand, I enjoy going around poking things. On the other hand, I have a very uh, low threshold for shame if I get things wrong. Mm. Um, yes. So, earlier this week... Let's remember uh, that you're English. Yeah, but, but you know, even <laughs> even within that, you know, I, you know, even controlling for nationality, uh, earlier this week... Well, a couple of weeks ago, somebody sent me a, an article by someone who is you know, under considerable suspicion. And I found a bunch of grim inconsistencies in it. And um, I didn't check it with James or anyone else. And I thought, hey, you know, this guy is obviously doing bad stuff. Here's some grim inconsistencies. Slam, don't what turned out. Grim, I, I completely bollocked up that uh, particular analysis. <clears throat> And um, so I found myself almost wanting, and so the person who'd written to me had gone to this dubious researcher and said, you know, again, not in a particularly accusatory way, he was covering, but, you know, he was going, oh, well, we'd like to see this. And, and the guy sent the analyses back by return of post and absolutely everything checked out. And so I felt a bit of an idiot, you know, and I hadn't even gone and stood up and said, this guy is guilty or something. So I, I, I get very, very embarrassed very easily. Uh, yeah, but you should small mistakes. So, so that's so the, the that's... whole thing is that you you know you know you're not you know you're not infallible, and you know well, that also, it's I'm, the, the it's I'm... the worst strategy to just start screaming at the holes the moment you feel like you've found a problem in someone else's work. It's not yeah, just so the fact the that it's uncollegial; well, it's not the it's not the right process to proceed with. What what is no, it to be? All... All, and we all still do it from time to time, or I still do it from time to time. What what I do try and do is I try and keep it. Uh, I try and keep the language very tempered and very uh, moderated. And sometimes you can kind of say, you know, not so that I can say, well, I never actually accused them of, of this or whatever, but just so you can sort of, you know, you didn't push yourself too far out there. You can go screaming in the street about it. Um, 
So, um, and I think also because a great deal of the criticism I publish has been in the literature, in the peer-reviewed literature. Um, you know, sometimes I'll write a blog post about something like this, but, um, you know, if it, it seems to me you fight fire with fire. And, and um, so, you know, I mean, the, the literature is in a poor state, but if you're replying with an article, you know, that has been peer-reviewed in the same journal, which everyone says is impossible, but I think I'm up to six or seven now, um, then, you know, at that point, there's a limit to how much they can kind of call you any form of methodological terrorist, when what you did was you went through the submission system, sent an article to a journal, you know, wrote a, wrote a rebuttal letter, uh, made the minor changes required, and, you know, filled in the publication form. So, <clears throat> um, Sounds like the way yeah. to do it. Now, uh, the, if they let you, Dan, it's if, the way to do it. <laughs> but, I mean, other than the advantage of speed, what do you see, or the lack of speed, what do you see as the biggest differences between actually, um, you know, calling out people or, or raising questions via a, a peer-reviewed letter um, versus actually doing it in a blog post? Or what have you found in your experiences? Well, it, writing an article forces you to actually think what it is, which particular things you're more angry about than others. Uh, which particular things mm. are more important than others, <clears throat> and when by the end defensible. of it, you, by the end of it, you've hopefully got a reasonably good article of, or idea of what went on in the article. Um, one of the things we found when we were looking at um, Grimm, which I'll put a little star on there. I mentioned Grimm earlier. I presume people refer people back to previous podcasts. Was you know when you're reading, um, I think we, I think I did the initial reading of 260 articles. Uh, after a while, they all turn into a bit of a blur. And you're just looking for numbers. You're not fully understanding uh, what all of the, you know, the procedures were. And even when you start reading them in a bit more detail, you know, you, we, we wrote to 20 authors and asked for their data. I don't think we could even at that point have given you a full, you know, concise description of exactly how each experiment worked. And sometimes there are enormous subtleties uh, in these things. Um, so I, I have a lot of sympathy. There's a thing at the moment, uh, a guy called Matt Motel has a, something in press at, J, at uh, J, 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 JPSP, where he's gone through 1,800 articles from 2003, 2004. Was this the peak of He and his colleagues appear to have recruited a bunch of grad students to each you know, code up 30 or 40 or 100, I don't know how many papers. Um, and so Yuri Simonson and colleagues just picked a random sample, and the first 10 they picked, I think nine were like, they, you know, they coded the manipulation check or some, you know, they hadn't uh, done it right. Now, obviously, you know, so, you, pick 10, you pick 10, you can get nine, but it's kind of, that's kind of embarrassing for the authors. It's also kind of embarrassing for the journal, if they've accepted it. So maybe, maybe it'll, I, I think there is some uh, activity going on behind the scenes to do a bit more thorough checking. Uh, but my, my thought with that was, you know, there before the grace of, etc. Yeah, um, and it just speaks to the actual method done because there's so much subjectivity about what the focal test is, um, whether it's an omnibus test or POS comparison test. Yeah. Um, you know, we have the same sort of experience when we're doing meta-analysis in that um, people <clears throat> report a lot of statistics and you have to actually make sure that you're doing the right one because uh, it's so easy to actually pick the wrong statistic. But because you've got a number, you're like, oh, cool, I've got a, I've got a correct thing. Whereas, um, you know, certain methods where it's more, more black and white, it can be uh, you're a lot less prone to make mistakes. Well, you had Daniel Larkins on last week, and I, un, unless I blinked and missed it, he didn't mention, a, um, maybe I'm not supposed to mention this, but we're, we're, we're looking at, uh, Daniel and I and a couple of other people, I'm, I'm very much 98th author on this, um, a system that would 
uh, basically allow you to do meta-analyses uh, without having to build an Excel sheet each time. Because when you start a meta-analysis, the first thing you draw is you draw up this enormous Excel sheet and start going through it and coding up all the effects. And uh, we want to sign. And if you're the fourth person to do a meta-analysis on that subject in three years, there are now four completely incompatible Excel sheets out there. You know, and uh, three other people managed to read that article correctly and get the right effect out of it. You, you know, didn't catch the little subtlety, and you've got the wrong one. You'll never know. Uh, and so we're looking at building some kind of system that would enable um, meta-analysis data to be uh, extracted shared and verified, um, it's, it's, it's extraordinarily ambitious, but it's, it's not actually a very difficult uh, technical problem. It's an organizational problem and a you know, willingness problem, but it's not really a very difficult uh, computing problem to solve. Hmm. Or are you just aggregating a relatively small amount of numbers into a structure? So you, know, you you would be able to say the headline result of this article. You know there were three there were three studies. Here are the three headline effect size from that article. And then when you would come along to use that, uh, you would either just accept it or you could check it. And if you checked it, you could say, yeah, I checked it and it checks out. Or you could say, hey, in study two, I got a different answer. And at that point, the idea would be that the people who'd use that data could have an email saying, uh, guys, did you think that the result you know there was a D of 0.4 in study two of this article? Because these people say it's only 0.16. Now, then you would get together and you know, agree about it. So there will even be possibly some kind of recall. <clears throat> hmm. But because, because our publishing unit is still, you know, the dead tree, you know, the dead tree article typed up on a, typed up on a typewriter and the, you know, the, the tables made in hot lead by some, you know, wizened <laughs> individual. Um, hmm. and, and, you know, APA style still recommends that you present your results in the text, in the form of sentences. And Anover reveal brackets F whatever. You know, why are we allowing people to present results that are not in tables with uh, titles and metadata that just can be automatically extracted by anybody? Why does Michelle Nautenover at StatCheck have to cope with the fact that your cop your typesetters replace the equal sign with a graphic that looks like an equal <laughs> sign? We aren't going back to the moon anytime soon, are we? <laughs> yeah, look, it's yeah, this when it, it comes to. I feel like the ability to organize and preserve data in a number of formats is rapidly becoming more important in a number of fields. And you really don't want to get left behind because you are building tools that people will use in the future. It's not just a matter of being able, oh, we're going to do a meta-analysis right now in the next few years. It's it's the same reason that we are very grateful that publication standards were what they were when we want to go back and look for grim inconsistencies. The yeah. fact that there's there's plenty of old uh, old journals and old journal societies with rubbish reporting standards, and yeah. I've 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 been in the situation many times where someone said, oh, "James, I think there might be a problem with this article," and you look at it and you go, "Well, you're never going to be able to find that out because it's been it's reported like a flung pie. <laughs> it's just a big mess of stuff. It's all yeah. to one decimal place. Um, none of it makes a great deal of sense. They haven't even told you what test they're using." 
So yeah. you know you can you can try and excavate some kind of meaning from this if you like, but it's really really difficult because the reporting standards suck. Well, we are it, now it, in this context. Just, hmm? That's not that's not just historical. I I dealt with a an article which uh, claimed that uh, they they had a result that was trending towards significance. Ah, oh, that old chestnut. A P, a P of point oh eight. Um, what they didn't report that it was a T test with two degrees of freedom. Uh, what? <laughs> what? That's not what? How? What? <laughs> there were three. There were there, there were there were three cases. Okay. Um, yeah, and it was uh, yeah, it was a T test with two degrees of freedom. But they didn't report that because PNAS doesn't require that. They only require the P value. Yeah, look, I'm always surprised by these things. Even now, even finding out the things that people do, like the, so the more creative versions of data recycling, are really funny. When and you know, there's some very very obvious cases of uh, plagiarism and fabrication and all sorts of horrible stuff going on all the time. But you still retain the capacity be, to be surprised by some dopey shit that people did. And that is some, that is, yeah, that is some vintage dodgy. Well spotted. Have you, have you seen anything? Of what, how, how often would you say in a normal week, because I want to see how this compares to me. I think you do more of this than me. How often would you say in a normal week, someone writes to you and says, Oi, Nick, what do you think of this? Oh, not that often, not that often, but when people do write to me, it tends to be about that. So it's not so much in terms of, you know, how, much, how many mails I get as what percentage of people who write to me and say, you know, I've heard about your research. Most of them are asking, you know, can you, can you, can you use Grimm for this or what do you think of that? And um, not a whole lot, but as a percentage of what people want to talk to me about, it seems there seems to be quite a demand for that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's rapidly becoming my experience of being alive. <laughs> uh, is it grim related stuff james or what kind of things are people asking you um it's also because of it's also because of sprite and some of the other stuff we've uh, done i had some some good conversations with various people about uh, all the stuff we learned from mark negrini which is the the original techniques Ooh. for looking at uh financial data and tax data which is a, or stuff that's based on Benford's laws. Basically, how, how, do, how do numbers assort in their natural state is a good collective way to describe it. Yeah. Benford's um, law it has a certain amount of sort of notoriety in, in, out there and people heard about it. I think there was Iranian election. Everyone said it was hacked and it turned out it wasn't, or at least it didn't violate Benford's law. Um, right. But Benford's law is only one among many. And actually with psychology type data, with Likert type data, you won't see Benford's yes. law at all. Yes, yeah, you don't. Um, so it's especially uh, anytime, anytime you've got a a restriction where you're not crossing between a categorical, uh, between a, a level of magnitude. Anytime you've got mm. something restricted within there, you're not going to see it at all. Um, yeah. You the, the the first and second digit tests are much more useful, especially if you've got lots and lots and lots of numbers being reported. Yeah. Um, but now that's we're really getting into the, the weeds and the specifics there, and and let's uh, let's let's not talk about this the the details of how these things are conducted because I can I can actually hear people in the future getting bored as I'm talking <laughs> about it. Um, now, one 
One thing I wanted to talk to you about, Nick, is um, you had uh, a bit of your work has been looking at the uh, research on genomics and well-being. Yes, that was the one with the t-test with three. With oh, that was the one. Okay. <laughs> oh, right. Can you give us a bit of a, or can you give the listeners a, just a bit of a really brief background about this research field and the problems, or some of the some of the problems that you've uh, found? I don't even know if it's a field. It was it was um, an article in the PNAS, and it dem- it allegedly demonstrated that. Uh, People with um, so the basic idea was that you have something called hedonic well-being, which is, you know, being a happy person because you get to go out and have have your nails done or you know watch the football when you want or whatever it is, and then something called eudaimonic well-being, in which it isn't even particularly altruistic, but it's kind of finding meaning in life and you know occasionally stopping drinking and kind of looking at the pretty birds and trees, and so. Um, those two correlate about 0.8. So there isn't a ton of, of you know extra variance to be explained. Uh, but this article claimed to demonstrate that um, that it was associated with different gene expression profiles, and the the sort of the cartoon version of it. Well, the whole thing was a cartoon, but the cartoon version of it was that um, if you have a lot of hedonic well-being, then your uh, bacterial defenses are activated uh, because you're going to get wounded in a lot of fights. Whereas if you're um, if you have a lot of eudaimonic well-being your viral defenses are more activated because you're going to catch a lot of viruses off all these people that you're going to be having so much sex with. Um, that's, that was the, some, uh... that, that's, that's the kind of crude way of putting it. Um, now, okay, if it, you put it in a sophisticated way, does it sound less like bollocks? Uh, not remotely, no. So uh, we, we, we got the data and we found some interesting things. Uh, one was there was a, a categorical variable that had obviously been recoded. I think it was race and um, they presumably had started out with the usual American, those funny American race codings they have, like Pacific Islander. Um, and they hadn't got anything out of that, so they just recoded it as white or not. But they'd, mm. left a four, they'd left a four in there. They'd had a Hawaiian or something. So this categorical variable went 0100014. Now, was this um, open data or data that you requested from the authors? Uh, this was, okay, so this was deposited on um, a genomics repository. So we, okay. da- um, you know, we found this four in there. Well, the person was either white or they weren't. We kind of assumed that they uh, weren't white, given that they were four. Um, And when you converted that to the non-white code, half the effect disappeared. Uh, Then we discovered that if we took one outlier and uh, pretended he hadn't shown up, and he had some very extreme uh, responses, so never mind excluding him, the presence of any one individual in your sample is a fairly contingent thing. And if he hadn't turned up, the the, the effect exactly flipped. Um, Flipped? Yeah, no, flipped completely. Um, one person, I love watching yeah. people's faces find it out about this for the first time. Obviously, no. I know this backstory, so yeah. I'm watching Dan listening to you, and it's great yeah. fun. Um, the now, at the time, I didn't know. I mean, I, I still know nothing about statistics, but at the time, I knew less than nothing. So um, I didn't have the vocabulary to notice that, in fact, uh, they were trying to fit a model with 71 variables with 76 cases. Um, but uh, which kind of might explain some of the problems. Uh, but, so what we did, because I'm a computer guy, I just wrote a whole lot of computer simulations of it. And it was quite funny watching the authors trying to rebut uh, what we'd done in the simulations because I was brand new to R and I needed to build a loop that went through some two to the power of N cases. So I thought I was very clever. I, I, I programmed it as a bitmap because I'm a very old-fashioned programmer. And um, so I, I, we just happened to describe in the, in the article how I'd used the bitmapping technique to go around this loop. 
you're not even meant to write loops in R. You know, I'm, I'd say I'm such a. I learned Fortran when I was 14 years old. Um, uh, so <laughs> in 1840. So we 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 happened to say, you know, we use a bit mapping technique to go around the loop. It was an incredibly unimportant technical detail. And the authors came back with how bit mapping was an invalid technique for, you know, variance estimation or something. And they're going, dude, it was just a detail of my program. So it was that was quite funny. They were sort of coming up with an excuse why this thing I'd use wasn't a valid statistical technique. Well, it wasn't even a statistical <laughs> technique. Um, and. You know, it was it was just horrific. It was to say, if this one guy hadn't turned up, they would have had to report the exact opposite of their uh, of their the, 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 of their hypotheses. And it was about seventy participants in in total. But, yeah, oh, yeah, I mean, yeah. They, never mind the fact that they were so. Since then, people who know a great deal more than me about numbers have published some much better analyses of this. Um, but uh, it continues to get citations. The authors continue to cite it. Uh, there's a wonderful. Um, uh, image from a, a conference where the, the, the main results are presented graphically and the, and the title of this slide is An Objective Basis for Moral Philosophy, which uh, strikes me as uh, somewhat ambitious from a sample of 76 <laughs> people, even if, you know, even if the results weren't in fact inverted by the absence of one participant. Um, but there's an this audience is... for this. <laughs> they're, 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 and and um, there is a public who is prepared to spend money on this, and so my my personal little bee in my bonnet about the deficiencies of psychology is how there are people getting seriously rich, you know, six high six, low seven figure book deals, um, corporate speaking gigs in the thirty to fifty thousand dollar range, um, on the basis of stuff that everyone would love to be true. It sounds good. It, it sounds great and it has not only does it sound great but it's got science with a science. capital S on it do these, yes. do these particular authors uh, <laughs> disclose any of these conflicts of interest in their papers it, it's oh, interesting not. conflict of interest no, appears really. to revolve around external funding um, it's for example if your article appears sorry if your article is accepted by the journal seven weeks before the popular book comes out that cites it um, and which that book then comes out four months before the journal actually the article even goes online so the rest mm. of the scientific community can see it you don't have to declare that That's you don't have point. to declare that it features in a forthcoming popular book for which you have a half million dollar book deal um, and because scientists typically don't have that or if they do they have to declare it because they're a shareholder in you know James Heather's Pharmaceuticals Limited but imagine if, that yeah, but if all you do is publish books, that be a very you know, dangerous company. That that doesn't appear to count in all the you know the publication, the, the conflict of interest codes don't appear to include. I will get paid a lot of money by being flown to places to talk about this. But that's kind of stupid because basically, I, I like some I like some journals that say, okay, you know what, it's pretty much impossible for us to put together a good what, what constitutes a conflict of interest. So mm. here's how we do it. Would would it be embarrassing for people to find out that you had this conflict? And in this sense, I think I think that that fulfills that criteria. That if you're making money doing these seminars, um, writing these books off these ideas, then that's enough to go. You know what? That's actually coloring what you're what you're what you're doing or, or, or what you're publishing. So I think that's a really good rule in that sense. But no one seems to be but, following it. But these people are not remotely are not remotely embarrassed by that. In fact, they put it on the cover of the books. Hmm. You know, they put it on the cover of their popular books that they do. You know, 
XYZ has published so many peer-reviewed articles, so many books, been invited on the Oprah Winfrey show, dot, 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 dot. You know, they, they don't think it's embarrassing. Uh, they, they think it's great. It's part of, it's part of the business model. Yeah. Yeah. One of the things, I pointed this out a while ago. Um, if you do a bunch of research and the research is terrible, and the research is either very heavily criticized, kicked down the road, or officially retracted, but you have a book that you write where all this research is interpreted into a broader narrative. Mm -hmm. Corrections may be made to the scientific record, but there's absolutely no question whatsoever of the changes being made to either the popular book that's written about it in the sort of semi-abstract or to the, the, the brand of how all of this stuff is represented. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. There's, a, uh, there's an idea where... Because I, I, I think I'm going to go out on a, a small limb here. I think because people within the social sciences are used to arguing about whether or not something is, is meaningful in the abstract sense. Does that concept really grasp at the underlying thing that we wish to measure? Because they're used to arguments about that. When you turn up and you say, your whole work is statistically invalid, you have made horrible, irredeemable mistakes, and you should feel terrible... They treat this as like you've turned up and said, yes, but does your measure of locus of control really capture the true meaning of locus mm. of control? They yeah. treat it like as a, it's, it's open for discussion and that they feel like they should come back and yeah, say, the, the oh, response. no. This, this is where I think this is the center of your reply when, you, when they're, uh, no, a bitmapping technique. What are you talking about? Surely a bitmap is just some kind of an old school cat picture. And, you know, it, it, there's, there's a, a sense to which a, more or less every response to a really good letter to the editor or they're trying to explain a corrigendum or something like that. There's, there's, you, you, often you can see this where the authors are applying to something and they're putting a brave face on not having the slightest fucking idea what's going on. We, and they uh, feel like they should be representing themselves in an argument, but they just can't. They, they, they're, it's, it's the criticism of what they've done has moved into an area they're entirely unfamiliar with, and they just feel like they should yeah. represent themselves because it's a. It's an, they feel like every argument is an argument about abstractions. Or it says something like, you know, we, we thank these authors for their input, and obviously, robust debate is an important part of the scientific process. You know, <laughs> it's it. You know, <laughs> oh man yeah they're good. we 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 thank these authors for their input for anyone reading is is probably the most loaded euphemistic phrase in the entire yeah. academy yeah. it's like we we value we value the time it took to prepare your grant application is another yeah. one which basically they should yeah. just write piss off no money for you and uh, we could all we could all sleep a little better well, when, you cannot, we cannot begin to express our joy when we opened your letter and discovered that somebody had taken an interest in our, in our, you know, in our article, uh, yes. regardless of the valence of that interest. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> oh, yeah. Do you, do you ever? So you're a, you're a, you're an old new bad person. Um, we have to put a link in for anyone who doesn't know what that euphemism means. Um, yeah. This is something that we talk about uh, from time to time. Um, you've obviously, I mean, you said you've 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 issued a lot of public critiques of people who've done, in my estimation at least, uh, some pretty ordinary work. And 
How how do you feel about them? How do you how do you characterize their emotional response to something like this? I don't think I have much of an opinion about that. It's up to them. Um, it's frustrating if they sort of, you know, in the case of the miscoded variable, where the uh, the miscoded categorical variable, they just uploaded a new version of the data set with the with the the four corrected, and didn't tell anybody. So any, anybody anybody who downloaded our analyses, who read our analyses and downloaded the data today, will go. Well, what's the problem? There's no there's no error in this data set. Was there any repercussions for that? Uh, no. No, Dan, this did, is did academia. We to, really what are you talking about? Did we write to the journal? We did. Did we write to the Office of United States Office of Research Integrity? We did. Uh, did anything happen? Of course not. But again, you know, like... But like, did, they, like, did they send you at least a, a, a nicely worded get fucked letter? Uh, they didn't send us a nicely worded or indeed a not nicely worded communication of any kind. Oh, right. Okay, fair enough. So, you know... <sighs> Yeah, it's just, you, 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 your, your expectations of how quickly uh, something like this can get dealt with uh, are very... Soon, soon after you try to uh, engage with literature on this basis, uh, whatever ideas you had about the process being straightforward or quick uh, are very, very quickly uh, kicked. Oh, well, uh, we're, we're going at lightning pace compared to some stuff, you know, some colleagues have talked about. Um, you know, people have been working on this stuff for three and four years and they've got, you know, they've had time to rewrite the JavaScript of their timeline software nine times to sort of make it even more beautiful. Um, oh, yeah, yeah. The, well, well yeah. The, the story starts in 2013. Oh, my God. Yeah. Seriously? Yeah. Seriously? Um, I mean, seriously, if, you, if every communication necessary to happen in that chain was walked... Yeah. You could, <laughs> you, could you could walk the communicator. People actually took it seriously. It's like, I, I nearly said pigeon there, but pigeon would be far too quick. Now, My, uh, circling yeah, back I mean, to the um, actually contacting authors um, and, and doing it the uh, the traditional way of actually writing a letter to the editor. I, I think one of the downsides of doing this is that quite often the original author gets the final right of reply. How do you deal with that? Well, I don't mind if they have a final, if they have a right of reply, because if I've put forward a good case, I mean, okay, they'll put the most positive spin on it. Uh, a slightly more disturbing problem I've been noticing recently, which has happened to me now uh, three times in the last year, twice as lead author and once as uh, junior author, is that um, the critiqued authors were reviewer one. Were reviewer number one. Uh, and in a case, a recent case, um, the, reviewer, the critiqued author was not only reviewer number one, but because he was a full reviewer, as opposed to, for example, being asked informally for his comments by the editor or being asked to write a reply, but he was actually reviewing on our article. And so uh, not only did he write what one might call a fairly robust defense of his own, you know, uh, of his own uh, example, but he, he also read the reviews, because he was inside the review system in this particular day, he was able to read the what reviews of reviewers two and three and write a reply to them, which was then included in the decision letter. Now, when you get the thing back, okay, so have, although you asked the editor not to involve the original authors, which you shouldn't even have to ask them to do, but okay, you, know, you said some people have done this, I'm sure you won't do it. He said, yes, we're going to involve them. All right, great. And then you get the back. So for instance, reviewers two and three were extremely supportive. 
But so then the reviewer one, the original author, writes a rebuttal of what reviewers two and three have written, and that's included in the decision letter. Now, am I meant to reply to that? You know, what's, what's even going on here? Um, so, um, and somebody made the argument, well, you know, maybe the original authors are the best place to understand the technical details of their article. Well, if two other fairly senior peers can't understand it, then we've got a bigger problem, you know. Hmm. Yeah, so, so, um, but this, this is common practice. Three, this is ha- well, it's happened three times to me in a year, so I guess it may not be completely uncommon. Um, <clears throat> now, I, I will say I'm not just writing letters to the editor. I'm writing, you know, we're typically writing you know, three and four and articles, you know, proper reanalyses. But nonetheless, nonetheless, you know, you would kind of hope that, the, the, you know, but and uh, you know, or you would hope that the review, the action editor, would take a particularly sceptical view of the, you know critiqued author's defense of every uh, line and point, but it, I, I wouldn't say I saw that. I wouldn't say I've been seeing a particularly, uh, I've been seeing a great deal of, uh, of, of skepticism on behalf of the, um, of the action editors in such cases. So yeah, it, it is a little bit awkward. It is a little bit, I, don't, I don't mind that they get to write the last word, depending on what the, you know, the sequence is. Um, but, you know, and I think the readers will take that with, a, with a, an appropriate pinch of salt. But I think for, the, for the, that person to be involved as a reviewer, you know, recommending that you, you know, recommending rejection. Yeah, of course. You know, like, oh, who just... knew? Yeah. Who knew? Anything could have happened. Yes, they, they, could have, they could have enthusiastically thanked us for discovering all of these uh, problems with their analysis and an answer to the correction would be forthcoming, but, you know, it didn't happen. Yeah, it's, it's, it's vaguely possible, isn't it? Um... <laughs> Have you got another question, Dan? Because I, I have a, a pertinent question. Let's uh, take a break, and then right. we can. Um, no, get back. what are you talking about? Why do we need to take a break? I don't want to take a break. I'd love. To, I, 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 I want to know what happens in the breaks because, like on the it, on the tape, on the tape, it's kind of you know, there's just a bit of and then you know. <laughs> oh, I get I get all the, the the rotten things that I want to say out of my system normally, and uh, the, they sort I'm, of march I'm up sa- and down I'm the corridor. I'm saving it up for our um for our fiftieth anniversary. All all the things that James says between uh between takes. Be you terrific. better not you. Uh, so I've told you about this on multiple occasions. <laughs> no, What's it's, it's my it's Nick? my Yep. <laughs> Nick, damn it, yeah. damn it, man. Um. What's the, what's a what's a good thing? What what's one thing that people is a a a lot of movement now towards modern scientific practice, open science, code sharing. People people who understand the problems that exist within the literature and attempting to rectify them. What's one thing they don't get? Um, I think one of the things I'd say is. Uh, people who are advocating for everybody to be taught R from undergraduate level as the way of doing um, their data analysis. You know, SPSS is, leads to some bad practices. Um, people have very poor what I would call data hygiene practices. Um, I would say the, the people who tend to be arguing for that tend to be people who are pretty damn good at computer programming. Um, and... Uh, I'm not convinced by that. I'm not convinced that all the people we want, particularly in sciences like psychology, um, 
I think already psychology suffers from the fact that in order to be good at psychology, you in theory have to be good with people and good with, with good at maths. And I think already those, you know, there's a fairly low intersection between those two. Um, and if we're really going to start getting lots of people who really enjoy writing code, you know, I, I know a lot of psychologists who obviously enjoy writing code a whole lot more than they do doing psychology. Um, you know, I don't know what percentage of the people driving the developments in the R language are, um, are uh, psychologists, but I think there's probably a fair few. Um, so I would, I would urge a bit of caution about that. Uh, and I speak as someone who's, I think, probably forgotten in my time, probably 25 programming languages and been paid to, been paid to program in 15. Um, not everyone is ready to code. And there's a lot of uh, a lot of the tales about how oh, yeah we converted all our undergraduates and they all love it yeah right there's a bit of survivorship bias there yeah um, fair enough so what, what you also um I feel like there's already a culture of if you if you need something coded or you need analyses handled in a particular way there's already very much a culture of consult someone who's an expert and get them to help you. Um, oh, most oh, reasonably yeah. well-run departments uh, give people access from a sort of a graduate level up to the right kind of resources. I mean, human and software to be able to get whatever analyses they need done. Um, so, look, if you assuming assuming that that's what you want to do, are you what about what about would you be in favor of more point-and-click? kinds of packages do you think that people who are really good at this stuff should be writing interfaces or trying to make things more accessible i think we need better training of what statistics means or statistics mean i don't know oh you're not going to get any argument in that from here um and i i think if we did that it would be less important in fact i think we would have less demand for the more obscure statistics i'm, I'm on a course at the moment here in uh, mixed models it's pretty complex pretty heavy stuff there's a lot of you know a lot of greek letters on the board and um but if you actually just take an, uh, a computer perspective of it that we've got a data set with um 60 people with a uh, depression scores over five weeks so there's roughly 300 bytes of actual information in the entire file. The entire data set can, is, is 300 bytes. You know, mm. we, we've, we've got, a, we've got a, a scale from 1 to 30 uh, over five weeks for 60 people. It's, it's less than 300 bytes if you actually you know, compress it down. And then we've got mixed models and we've got random slopes and we've got you know, AIC of 2114, and then we add a random slope for this, and it goes down to an AIC of 2111, and is that, and then we do the chi-square to see if that's a significant difference. We've got self-report data of 60 people with depression. Let's not yeah. pretend. Yeah. You know, and, yet, and yet we go around pretending like we've got some kind of, you know, like, the, like this is the weather data for the whole of, of, the, whole of the United <laughs> States or something. Um, show, us, show us a yeah. figure. This is, this, is, this is all the tidal information for the entire Western European seaboard for a year it, and a half. It, uh, is, and it I, isn't. It's small data. It's very much not big data. It's very much not big data. And, and um, I mean, the other problem we have is, is that we have a statistical tradition from people like Fisher where... Fisher is mainly interested in how many corn cobs you can grow on a hectare, and he literally doesn't care 
that your new fertilizer makes 10% of the corn plants die if it makes 20% of them yield double. Um, our entire, you know, in, again, I'm talking from the point of view of psychology, but we talk. But you guys are you guys are life scientists. Individuals are important, you know, and and um, we, you can't reduce people to an average. And I don't want to sound like, you know, some anti-science person saying that. But you know, if you go along, if you guys go along tomorrow for a treatment of any kind, and it says it makes 90% of people better, and it makes 10% 10 of cases their leg falls off, you aren't signing up for that treatment. You know, you, you're, you're, much, you're not interested in things with a random slope. Mm. <laughs> you know, you wanna, <laughs> Unless you it's wanna, a random slope you can't walk down in the absence of your leg. Yeah, um, you're not interested in a random slope, frankly. You're not interested in modeling that slope as, you know, as, unless, they're all, you know, unless they're all going in the same direction. Um, and I think it's very, very easy to forget that those numbers in front of you are actually real people. Um, who are taking decisions about whether they, you know, want to be, want to go for the big needle or the small needle. Um, and I think that affects psychology. I think it also affects the other life sciences. And to try and do that on, you know, on the back of 300 bytes of data and then publish in a big journal and then, you know, mm -hmm. hopefully people will ignore it. The problem then happens is some politician who wants the, uh, the uh, you know, authenticity of science behind his policy uh, we'll go out and spend, you know, $200 million on it, on your Type 1 error. Um, yeah. That, that really worries They'll me. They'll be building a, better school lunchrooms before you know it. I, I was kind of hoping you would mention that, but yeah, something like that. <laughs> so, you know, with, if you, as I say, we, our entire, our, the entire Fisherian statistical tradition, as far as I can, you know, Fisher was talking about plants. And okay, maybe you know, maybe he knew people would apply it to, to, to humans or whatever. But fishers, he was coming from the background of plants and yield. And um, I could get very I, well. I was going to say I could get very political. I couldn't get very political because I'm not very political. But the, it wouldn't be very difficult for someone who was more political than me than put an interpretation on that in terms of you know. Uh, we're all dehumanizing. It, I don't care about that, really. It's just, it just seems to me to be inappropriate. And I think we need to teach people a lot less square, look, a, a lot, lot fewer formulas with square roots in them um, and a lot more about what it means to have individual differences and, you know, what it means to say, okay, 20% of people got better, 40% or 5% got a lot worse. Yeah. Have you ever had the conversation with someone where you said, did you look at the scatter plot and they've said no and you wonder what planet you're on? Uh, yeah, I mean, when, when, but when did descriptives go out of fashion? Yeah. You know, why? did that electronic paper all of a sudden become so expensive that we, got, we can't have a simple table of means and standard deviations and intercorrelations of every variable in the study? Thank you very much. I mean, yeah. given, that they should, given they should be giving us the data set anyway, but as a minimum, could we at least have the table of descriptives? And quite often you look at that and you can already see what's going to happen when they start doing the regressions. Yeah, pretty much. It's what, uh, who is it? That, I, think it's, I think it's JP. It refers to uh, the difference between two groups as the uh, intraocular trauma test. Oh, that's a very old expression. That's not JP, yeah. Ah, uh, well. JP, anyway, JP, it's, it's JP, uh, JP Darauto, his, his principal um, theoretical contribution or in my opinion, his best theoretical contribution is the observation, I mean, he's a cognitive linguist, the, the observation that social psychology um, 
is, uh, is is trying to prove that everyone is either an asshole or a zombie, which I call his eight, which I call his A to Z theory. <laughs> uh, he's got to he's got to listen to this, so give him a wave. <laughs> I've heard that a few times now and I can't, it just cracks me up because it, it feels ridiculously true. Um, he told me I can use that as long as I credit him, so JP, do uh, for you, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah, it's, it's, it's nice a one. Thing, but it's true. If you know, you read, you, you, we saw that just reading those articles from JPSP and whatever for, for Grimm. And oh, know, yeah. ev- every third article is about how. Um, these nice young undergraduates in psychology are all horrific racists. Yeah, yeah. You know, or, we, uh, we, 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 nudged, we nudged them with a carefully coded piece of coloured paper and then all of a sudden, uh, yeah, they were, he they was were, voting they, for they, the National Front. They, they folded the piece of paper into a Ku Klux Klan hat, you know. Yeah, yeah, and then they were they were stumping around the room. They didn't even know how to do the walk right, but they were still trying. It would, yeah. yeah, you and can. Then, the, the, if people then, it's something that you told me once, if if everyone's capable of being shuffled around yeah. by these things that exist at this sort of this uh, sub perceptual threshold, if we're such victims of these things, if they're as powerful as they're supposed to be, how the fuck does anyone get anything done? I, I, if, you, if all of the priming stuff was right, then none of us would get to work in the morning. You know, you'd be sort of, you'd go past a billboard and you would immediately have to leap out and buy whatever, you know, divert yourself via the shopping centre to buy whatever it was that had been subtly primed into you. And yeah. the, I mean, the other thing is, psychologists don't really believe this themselves either. They certainly don't behave as if they believe this. Um, you know, in, in, in how you go, you go to a meeting with a bunch of psychologists, it's no better, it may be no worse, but it's no better or worse than a meeting with a bunch of aerospace engineers or anything like that. Um, you know, they don't sit around going, hmm, we appear to be using a great deal of groupthink here, or, you know, here are 17 cognitive biases that are on public display in this, in this meeting of psychologists. Yeah, sure. Let's make, every, let's make sure everyone's viewpoint is adequately represented. That doesn't happen that often. Yeah. Is there, is there anything about cat priming? Cat priming. Well, I'm sure someone's done a study where they show you adorable animals and it makes you feel better, and thereby there's a theory of why the internet's has, so has successful these days. Oh, I, I'm, I'm quite certain that you could construct that, and then, you know, depending on which way it came out, you, the, the, the great thing about these priming studies is you'll always find something significant, and it's fairly easy then to have a, you know, things saying, you know, that this, why, why it came out one way or the other. Um, ah, it doesn't work. I've been priming. I've been cat priming through that entire sentence, and your expression didn't even change. Ah, oh, it's because your video isn't working. Bollocks! Your, your We're just going by been, audio, James. Your picture's been frozen for the entire uh, on, on my screen. Anyway, I, I, I what hope I'm doing something doing? funny. Sorry, well, I, I, mine's just completely blank. But uh, hopefully, you're getting a good expression, a good frozen expression of James. Uh, this, um, now I'm getting a frozen expression to me. I think the internet's starting to come down. We've obviously told some kind of secret to the powers that be. I think Mark Zuckerberg <laughs> is starting to break this shit up. We're, we're doing fine. It's only you, mate. Oh, we're, oh, right. Okay, fair enough. Oh, well, yeah, okay. B- b- before we wrap uh, up... I suppose I this is wanna, the easiest order to knock on. I, I just want to ask you uh, one, one question, uh, Nick. We, we, we like asking our, our, our guests some broad questions about their career. Uh, is there something that you've actually changed your mind about? In this the last is my few favorite years? question. I think I've changed my which my favorite question is, but I think this is now officially <laughs> my favorite question. Um, oh, what have you changed your mind on? I used to think 
before I got into the sort of peripheries of science, um, you would be waiting at the coffee machine or whatever at work, and someone would be reading some story in the paper, and it would say, you know, coffee gives you cancer, and they oh, why can't they make up their bloody minds? Last week, coffee cured cancer, blah, blah, blah. And uh, I would sort of make the mistake of getting involved and saying, well, of course, you know, the scientists are just, you know, the research is evolving, and the fault is all with the journalists. And... <laughs> Um, you know, the, the, journalists are just, the journalists are just looking for sensation. And uh, the discovery that most of the fault is with the scientists who are trying to push their very often absolutely terrible stuff, usually out of fairly modest self-interest. Um, I'm not a great believer in conspiracy theories. Um, no. You can you can very easily have one of those things turn into a big thing if if if, if a couple of the people behind the bad science happen to run powerful and influential labs. I, but I don't believe in, you know, I, yes, I'm sure ExxonMobil probably doesn't fund a lot of research that shows that you know CO2 emissions cause global warming or whatever. But with the exception of one or two things like that and the tobacco thing, in the majority of cases it's just simple self-interest of people who like being right, uh, like getting their grant renewed. Etc. Etc. You know, ordinary, boring ego issues, um, and you know, results come out and they show whatever this person wants to be associated with, and, and he's off on his little. You know, this is the professor who says this happens. You know, and and um, what what's interesting is the one way in which the press are very lazy is they tend to always go to the same two or three people on, on any given subject. There's a neuroscientist called Sam Schwarzkopf, who's a German, lives in London, I follow on Twitter. And he happened, for some reason, uh, just after the Brexit referendum, he, he wrote some, and he happened to get featured in one newspaper. He was one of thousands of, of, of academics and hundreds of thousands of EU citizens living in the UK with exactly the same problem. And he's, yeah. now, he's now been interviewed about five or six times, and he, you know, he basically practically needs an agent. And... Um, you know, they go to the the same place. There was a thing the other day, for some reason, one of the French newspapers went to the village I used to live in, outside Strasbourg, and its neighbour, because they discovered that one of them was twice as likely to vote for Macron, one of them was twice as likely to vote for Le Pen. Um, and then three days later, a Spanish newspaper turned up in exactly the same two villages. Now, you know, there are 36,000 towns in France, and they could have gone to any two, really, but because they were just kind of, oh, well, let's do this. So I'm pretty sure the mayor of that village for the next 18, 24 months is going to be sending off media questions from around the world as to why his village is the most tolerant in the area or the least tolerant or whatever it is. Mm. Um, and what do you and, think of those idiots over there? Yeah, and, it's, and, and um, the attention is, is extremely not evenly distributed. And if you're lucky, the people who are getting the attention are also doing the good science. But in general, the reason why the media pick up on science is because it enables them to sell to the kind of people who go, oh, look at that, it's a, it's a fairly low bar to cross. But if you've got something that people who read the Huffington Post or, or Cosmopolitan or USA Today will talk about, um, then you know, the, they want to hear from you. And so you end up with some fairly ropey science that happens to be on a, you know, on a sexy subject. And I mean, James and I are... Uh, Currently, we're, I think we can reveal today, well, not many details, but we're currently working on another uh, situation where we've got a researcher who is making this stuff basically to order. Um, and as far as we know, none of, the, none of the research actually takes place. But the stories 
uh, come out, and they just fit perfectly with what the um, you know the, the, the press wants to talk about. Wow, I'm looking forward to hearing more about that in the future. Yeah, this is a, a race that has continued for a while, and in some sense remains yet to be run. And well, as, it was, of course, it's our problem. It, it, it's what we were talking about <laughs> earlier. Of you know, you we've been we've been sitting on this basically for 18 months while we've been trying to get various authorities to do the right thing, yep. and not out of any ill will on their part, just out of the simple inertia that you know. In order for anything like this to have to happen and to move, it requires people who really aren't very interested to do something quite difficult. In the same way, for example, if, if you work for a large enough organization, even a private company, private sector company, if you work for a large enough organization, it's very hard to get fired unless there's a general round of layoffs because the chances that the people who want you, who would actually like you not to be there because you're so incompetent, the chances of them intersecting with the people who have the power to do it and the people who are prepared to go through the months of hassle that it will take to do it are essentially nil. And much the same happens with... Um, uh, misconduct or bad science is, you know, the people who are required to actually join with you and sign bits of paper saying we agree that XYZ research was either terrible or fraudulent um, really have got better things to do with their lives. And it's not a criticism of them that they don't all of a sudden, you know, hear about this story and rush out, put on the superhero suit and pledge to defend science. We've all got better things to do. Um, and and but the, the downside of that is it means that when you discover this stuff, I mean, I wouldn't call James and I James and whistleblowers in this sense, in that we're not insiders. It's not being done. Yeah, to we're us. not. We're not internal to any of this process. Yeah. There's no. Well, yeah, I am. I am thoroughly without whistle. And um, but but it's still basically our problem because we discovered it. And you know, it, if it, whereas if you have a sort of normal crime, if I see somebody opposite robbing the bank, I call the police, and at that point, you know, yes. They'll call me to court to say, you know, what did you see on the morning of the 24th? And I'll say, well, I saw this bloke come out of the bank. And that's it. That's the, but there is a kind of, you know, there, there's somebody whose job it is to make it no longer my problem that I'm the only person in the world that knows that this bank got robbed. And um, yeah, n academia has no police. Now, I'm not suggesting that we set up the world academia police, but in the absence, in the absence of police, in the absence of anything resembling a public prosecutor, uh, you're going to have some kind of ad hoc solutions. Um, they don't necessarily, that doesn't necessarily have to be a bad thing, but it's typically going to mean that the people who are the closest to discovering it are going to end up owning the problem. And oh, you know, yeah. J James and I are, I think, both fairly thick-skinned. And you know, I'm extremely thick-skinned. You are slightly less than extremely thick-skinned. Pe people with thinner skin than us would not have been you know, still pursuing this after 18 months. But now we're getting to the point where we're saying, look, official channels, if you want to deal with this guy at a disciplinary level, then that's fine. But in terms of a scientific level, nothing is going to happen unless we go public with it. So that's pretty well where we are today. So that, that, the, 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 um, the publicity around this is in preparation. Okay, cool. Yeah. If, if, I'm, if I'm ever looking for an inconsistency in something, part of me, this is a weird thought, but... Part of me always hopes that it's really obvious and it's extremely straightforward because you become familiar after doing this for a while and like looking for looking for things that are egregious enough to be corrected. 
you get to the point after a while where you really hope that it's not as complicated as it could be. Oh, yeah. Where you won't have to wear the mantle of trying to unfuck something that you've seen where clearly something is a problem. Yeah. So when when that ha- when that happens is uh, uh, and you see, oh right, there's a huge amount of plagiarism here, or this data set has clearly been copied between the papers. I mean, as much as it's like the scientific problem is worse, and the, like the, there's certainly you can upgrade it from sloppy or careless or doesn't know what they're doing to actual malfeasance, because everyone knows you're not supposed to publish the same data twice in two different formats. It's lying. Um, but it makes it so much easier to deal with because now you have a concrete example of something that you can't argue against. You don't have to acquire this mantle of bullshit prosecution that's not your responsibility in the first place. You can just go, hey, you know how some stuff is the same as some other stuff? Yes, well, check these two allegedly independent sources of information out. Yeah. And then chuck it it out and then uh, walk away. It ends up being a bit like um, kind of complex financial fraud trials where they sort of quite often the people get off on the because the jury you know after about four months of sitting there listening to evidence just basically their heads explode from you know and 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 the key point that there was fraud was that you know at 12 17 he shouldn't have consulted this index but he sort of cheated with this and whatever and you know it, it's egregious, but it only takes a nanosecond in 300,000 other things that you all, all of which you have to understand. And um, you know, you, people will say, "Well, I'm sure you're right, James." And they probably are sure we're right, James and Nick. But they, you know, they've got other things to do with their life. They don't want to sit around for 45 minutes and understand this stuff that you, you, you and I have spent three weeks even just trying to understand, you know, where the numbers flipped. Yeah. Um, and so if you if you make your malpractice sufficiently complex, you can get away with much of it pretty much forever. Mm. Pretty or much forever. more the, the fact that you're, you're under no obligation to have... Uh, I, I feel like some of the most effective research that's actively bad is the research that sounds and looks the most slick and the most sophisticated. Mm. I think there are people writing work that has absolutely no substance whatsoever who are actually very good authors yeah. the, the, the 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 what they what they sell or present or put in front of people is extremely well structured it's extremely well written um a lot of the time if you actually check the reference in context it doesn't have a great deal to do with the narrative that's being sold but the narrative itself is actually even uh, even in relatively complex documents the narrative is hot yeah um, and, it's, and it takes a really really hard-hearted reader to be sitting there going yeah but hold on didn't you just say this mm, and you yeah. you need to be you need to be both hard but you need you need to be alert and skeptical while also being able to read other scientific articles that are actually true. So, you know, one of my... Sometimes my wife or a couple of friends, and they'll say, you know, oh, I saw this, Nick. What's wrong with this? And I'll go, I haven't read it. You know, sorry, I haven't read it. I'm not... it might well be it might well be rubbish, but I'm now now the person people can go to if they want to say, Nick, come and tell us this is rubbish. I get that a lot with oxytocin. Someone will have some crazy oxytocin thing, and I'll be tagged going, "What do you think? What do you think? Yeah. Is it is it bollocks?" And I'm like, yeah. "Well, I don't yeah. know." <laughs> yeah, no, I, don't I, I do to, it I... primarily to annoy you at this point, Dan, because I know it's bollocks. <laughs> 
yeah, quite quite a lot of the time. Quite a lot of the time. Well, yeah. we're um, run out of time for today. Uh, thanks, thanks for joining us. Um, uh, thanks for joining us today, Nick. Uh, if Ooh. you want to follow Nick on Twitter, you can. He's uh, he's S Team Train. That's S T E A M T R A E N. Uh, yep. And we'll, we'll add that to the uh, to the links as well. And uh, Nick's also got a fantastic blog that we will also link to. Uh, you can also follow the show uh, on Twitter at at Hertz Podcast. Uh, you can follow us. James is James Heathers, easy to remember, and I am DS Quintana. Uh, and we've also had a lot of people who um, like contact- contacting us either via email or via Facebook if you want to write yeah, a, bit of a longer message. Yeah, we've had message. two very good... Now we're starting to do things with more guests. We've had two very good... Uh, somewhat left field uh, guest requests, which I, are both. I would, I would, I would like to do more shows with people who are mad as well. So, if you know anyone who's totally unhinged but yet still relevant, um, I think that'd be absolutely ideal. I mean, Nick, Nick's too, Nick's too sensible. Um, I mean, I look, I, I, I love you, but you haven't said anything horrible at all. And I feel that I feel the need after an hour to be vaguely provocative. Uh, yeah, hmm. I, I'm obviously <laughs> obviously on my best behaviour. My wife's getting here in about half an hour. I'm obviously uh, revving oh, up for that. Right, fair enough. Well, yeah. Look, do us do us all do us all a follow. Uh, everyone, be special best friends. Podcast this, podcast that. Signing out. Big smile. How's your father? See you later. <laughs>